A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Truth and Movies, Michael B. Jordan is back in the ring in boxing sequel Creed 2. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands. We go the distance, all three hours of it, with Nora Bilga-Jalan's Turkish drama, The Wild Pear Tree. And then Film Club. This week, Will Smith is Muhammad Ali in Michael Mann's aptly titled biopic, Ali. Y'all want to lose y'all money? Then you bet it on Sonny. He know I'm great. He will fall in eight. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Michael Leader here sitting in the ring with on my right the undisputed editor of Little White Lies, David Jenkins. Hey there. And on my left, a new contender hailing from New York by way of Nottingham, Christina Newland. Welcome, Christina. Hello. So you've been a long time contributor to Little White Lies, but this is the first time on the podcast. So please introduce yourself to our listeners. So what sorts of films do you like? What, sort of, what do you write about? And where can we read your writing? I'm a freelancer, so I write for Little White Lies. I write for Sight and Sound quite a lot, um, The Guardian a little bit, um, some American publications mm-hmm. like um, Movie Notebook, mm-hmm. and uh, I love to write about boxing films, which uh-huh. I guess is part of why I'm here. <laughs> um, and I love to write about fashion in film. Mm-hmm. I love to write about uh, masculinity in film and um, the physicality of movie stars, stuff like that. Great. So, a lot of it very relevant to today's films, as you very say. Apropos. Yeah, so shall we crack on with our first movie today, Creed 2? So after going toe-to-toe with a light heavyweight champion in the previous film, Adonis, son of Apollo Creed, is worldwide star, starting a new life for himself and his fiancée Bianca on the West Coast. But when the opportunity arises for Adonis to avenge his father's death in the ring at the hands of Soviet slugger Ivan Drago by facing Drago's son Victor, Creed's trainer Rocky Balboa has some concerns. In the ring, you got rules. Outside, you got nothing. Life hits you with all these cheap shots. People like me, we live in the past. You got people that need you now. You got everything to lose. This guy's got nothing to lose. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands. Listen to me, this guy is dangerous. But you don't think I could beat him? So, Creed 2, this is following on from the surprise smash hit Creed a couple of years ago. Ryan Coogler, the director there, is not in the director's chair this time. That's Stephen Capel Jr. Michael B. Jordan's returning. Christina, were you excited for Creed 1? Would that meet your expectations? And were you excited for the sequel? I was excited for it, but I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. You know, when you pick up from a franchise like Rocky, 
you don't really know. But the, the kind of the concept of somebody being, you know, Apollo Creed's son mm-hmm. interested me from the get go. And it was a little bit of a surprise just how kind of tidy classical filmmaking it was mm. and how kind of dynamic and exciting it was to watch. And that same kind of rocky thing of wanting to get up and cheer. Mm-hmm. That kind of carries over into this, I think. Okay. I think it has the same feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, the Rocky franchise had some trouble with sequels, some worse than others. And this one decides to pull out probably the most famous of Rocky sequels, Rocky IV, Ivan mm-hmm. Drago. Is this a suitable plot line to pull through for a sequel here? I think it makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. given the, the nature of the kind of good versus evil mm-hmm. feel that <laughs> that Four had. Yeah. For the first half an hour or so, I think it, it basically sets up that struggle in a way that, that maybe is predictable, uh-huh. but is also kind of feels as inevitable and as satisfying to watch to come to its conclusion as mm-hmm. as you'd want it to be. Yeah. A satisfying experience for you, David? Mm, moderately so. I actually caught up with the original Creed mm-hmm. very recently with the prospect of having to see this. It was, you know, doing homework, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the original Creed was really good. Mm. Like, like Ryan Coogler, I haven't loved all of his films, but I think this film in particular is is a really well-directed, you know, well-thought-through mm-hmm. film that I think uses the kind of boxing motif to speak about other things, about um, fighting and fighting in a kind of literal and metaphorical sense, I think. This film kind of does what Hollywood does quite well, which is, a, is a, there's a sort of like will-this-do-ism to it. Like, mm-hmm. it's a very serviceable, lightly satisfying sequel, which I think does everything that it needs to do to sort of scrape a victory. Uh, <laughs> am I allowed to say that? Is that a term that's used in boxing? Because I, really, I don't really know boxing. I mean, I guess, I feel like... I, I realise it's lame. But I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like almost like half of the metaphors we use go it, back to boxing. It's true. Down for the film, count, film cr- the It's true, it's true. <laughs> but I mean, it's basically parlaying this kind of iconic third sequel with Ivan Drago, who was the kind of... The film came in the sort of Reagan era and he mm. was the representation of the evil empire and uh, this kind of threat of Russia on the West. And, um, of course, Rocky, being the all-American hero, took the fight back to his place and gave him a walloping. And you kind of get a, a sort of a, a bit of a rehash of this. And I think one of the things that's disappointing about this film is that politically, time has stood still. Okay. I mean, the, the depiction of Russia in the film and the Russian characters is a bit broad brush, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I mean, you remember in the first film where you've got the scene of Rocky basically practising his punching. He uses the side of beef the as a punch beef, bag. Yeah. I mean, Victor Drago is basically that side of beef. And he's been brought back to life and rejuvenated and, and made into a boxer. And he's just a kind of scowling pulverizing big piece of meat and Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a bit of a shame that there's not really much done to it's just a bit sad that Ivo Ivan Drago's is kind of sorry I'm talking about (laughs) talking about Michael's son rather than Ivan Drago so um, I think it's a bit disappointing that all the focus is on Rocky and and, uh, Adonis Creed and Mm -hmm. so little is on this iconic character of Ivan Drago, like the idea that he's that time has passed and he was this kind of the Red Terror, and now mm-hmm. he's kind of fought, fallen by the wayside, rejected by the the powers that be, swept under the mat, deemed as a kind of national failure. Mm-hmm. I almost wish that this had been like the Ivan Drago movie, <laughs> rather. Right. Than, well, how, could uh, Dolph Lundgren carry that movie? 
I think he probably could. He I probably he, could. I thought he was quite good in this. Yeah, yeah, he, could. He's, he was always a bit shaky in the Expendables films and so on. Yeah. There's a really uh, interesting interview with him recently in The Guardian and he is a, a really super thoughtful, intelligent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you like something you maybe wouldn't guess from the kind of cheap Image. Jack films that he yeah, stars yeah. in, but um, he's like a clever guy, qualified um, scientist. Yes, yes. Former boyfriend of Grace Jones. Incredible fashion photography in the early eighties. Exactly. I'd recommend a Google image search. So basically, perfect. Then exactly, yeah. <laughs> here's, here's a question: Is it true that, like, maybe Christina, you can answer this? But other Rocky films, if you were to rank them. The ranking is basically chronological. With each one, they get a bit worse. Hmm. I, I like four. Okay. I like four. I think four I think has it, the cult appeal and was a yeah. huge hit as well. And then it really went off the rails with five. And then I like Rocky Balboa too. Though I guess that's not, I don't know if you mean yeah. chronological is going that. And um, where would Creed rank in that? Because it is a soft reboot pseudo sequel with, with the other Rocky movies. Is that on a par with the first one? Is it better? Is it doing something different? It's hard to say, but yeah. I think, I don't know if it's on a par with the first one, but it's, it's, in, it's hovering around in that, you know, two category, I guess, mm-hmm. I'd say. Yeah. But I do think what you were saying about the Ivan Drago character and the son, like that there is some emotional payoff by the end. I mean, it's not, not really dwelled upon. You don't get loads. But there is a little bit of, you know, they're not completely carved from stone. I don't want to kind of... No. Y- you mm. know, but yeah, there's some interesting stuff that happens towards the final act that I think gives it a little bit more heft. Mm. But the other thing that interests me about that is, yes, the depiction of like cold, gray, like concrete block, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, looks like the USSR still mm. kind of... Mm. Russia is an unchanged stereotype, but I do think that there's some relevance in making the man that the American champion faces Eastern European, because a lot of fighters now are, like, there's a guy called Yusik that just fought Tony Bellew, and Tony Bellew is a bit of a underdog, heavyweight favorite in this country from mm-hmm. Liverpool, a bit of a big mouth, everyone liked him. Of course, Tony Bellew is also in the first Creed film, mm-hmm. he plays... Um, Something Conlon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah the, 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 the heavyweight champion that yeah. he fights in the, in the first And, uh, you know, had this amazing underdog win, went forward to have, like, a, a decent career, get a few titles, and was spectacularly knocked out by this Yusick guy. And when I first saw Victor Drago, he reminded me of oh, wow. hmm. this guy because he has this, like, kind of wide, shark-like, high, like, high cheekbone face and this really kind of, like, robotic look behind the eyes. And he is just a machine. He's wide, like... Massively wide. A lot of fighters are not built like Adonis Creed. But it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting that, I mean, you know, you, you have that cliche of like in Russia, they live to basically crush the, the American dream. <laughs> so like, you know, they wait, he, he's like prodded at daybreak to go and like do do reps and, you know, go and have a, a medicine ball smashed into his face and stuff <laughs> like that. But and I think one of the things that I, that I felt a little bit disappointed with this in this film and that maybe was down to the direction was the, right. was the actual fights themselves uh-huh. in the first film there is a the first sort of significant fight scene sorry match it's filmed in this kind of long sinuous mm. single take and mm. you're watching it you're thinking oh this is interesting this is you know someone trying to do something a bit different with the boxing with how, mm. how we film boxing when we watch boxing live it generally is just one single held shot really for like yeah, a kind of medium switch. shot between but like mm-hmm. two cameras, but the, yeah. Whereas a film will hide stuff it's between the, the edits, and it's yeah. all, it's it's a kind of match that's built up through choreography. It was made to feel like one long kind of dance sequence, mm-hmm. and it kind of gave the film some real kind of formal heft. I think 
and this doesn't really do that. The, both the boxing scenes felt very kind of generic and really okay, which is a shame because there's actually one element where. So Ro- Rocky isn't present at Creed's first match against Ivan Drago. Sorry, against Victor Drago. And um, he's basically back at his little kind of weird trattoria that nobody goes to, Adrian's. And he's watching it alone on, on his flat screen. And um, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be amazing. You're going to see the whole match from Rocky's perspective watching it on TV you're going to basically get the drama of boxing as filtered through this guy who has got this really interesting and intricate connection with one of the fighters. But it just, I don't know, it just didn't do that and ended up just being a very kind of conventional boxing match with and then kind of coming back to Rocky's reactions going, oh, no, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, your little impression. sorry. (laughs) Um, No, the um, conventions are so deeply in this mm. film and so the rise and fall and rise and, like that whole kind of narrative arc feels familiar like it's almost to the point of being predictable and all of the family melodrama in there as well feels very kind of classical mm-hmm. they're ingrained to the point where I think maybe some people will come away and I think it very much depends on how much enjoyment you get out of the, out of it because like you say I think formally as well there wasn't a shot in the film that surprised me I would say also there there isn't really like in the first film when you have the revelation of Rocky has lymphoma mm-hmm. that feels like a quite jarring and Absolutely. and surprising whereas there's nothing that's the analog to that in this film which is a maybe, shame really. maybe the stuff maybe that one little thing with the child just a bit yeah so so one change in this one is Creed Michael B Jordan's character settles down with his with his fiance they have a child right yes. so there's a new Tessa emotional Tessa Thompson who's, who's, who's really good and she's still and, making that awful music in this one but he, but he no. has a family to look after now yeah and the big theme capital T capital H <laughs> capital E capital M capital E is family and having and having responsibility and having someone to fight for him having a daughter changes his perspective on life mm-hmm. as i'm sure Mm-hmm. It does to have anyone. Who has I think that there is that thing of of the fact that Adonis can be a bit of a dick, and he does seem quite selfish at times. But I also think it's quite true to this kind of idea that a lot of fighters have young families, mm. but that won't stop them from putting themselves at risk every time they get into the ring. Now, very rarely are boxing matches as dangerous as what this film kind of makes them out to be, to the extent that somebody's out to really hurt you badly in that way. And I think that's. One of the things about the whole Rocky franchise that's erroneous, without trying to be too pedantic, like most fighters are not out to kill or maim somebody. They're there to do a job mm-hmm. and probably touch gloves and make friends at the end of it. What Creed 2 gets wrong about boxing. Right? <laughs> but, but I'm only comparing because I, I only saw Creed recently, but like I, I almost felt that the Creed character is a little bit sort of... Whereas in the first film, he's kind of fueled by this very sort of righteous anger. Mm-hmm. The second film is, he almost feels a bit dumb, a bit kind of, I just got to fight. I think that's okay, though. I think that's, I mean, without casting too many aspersions, I think that there is something in a fighter's psychology which is so much different to most of the rest of us that allows them to inflict pain or ritualized violence in that context. Most of the time, I mean, this, this film gives the context and the family set up for there to be anger and revenge as part of it. Most of the time that doesn't exist, but... um. That psychology, I think, makes you one-track-minded and single-minded in that way. So if he is a little bit dumb, he gets punched in the head for a living, <laughs> you know. So Creed, radical in, in some ways, very conventional in yeah, others in, in the way it's showing the film. 
So I feel like we've gone 10 rounds mm-hmm. with Creed 2 here. Let's round this up with our scores. This is in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. Christina, I'll come to you first. Do I have numbers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Out of five, yeah? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Anticipation was five. Enjoyment was four. I guess in retrospect, four. David? I'd probably say anticipation was four. Mm-hmm. And enjoyment in retrospect, probably threes. Yeah, I, I liked it well enough. I just think it sort of slightly pales in comparison to the first one, which I think is really good. I do think the first one's better. I'll so. give you that. <laughs> well, terrific. We'll have to see if there's a Creed three with the Son of Thunderlips <laughs> returning to fight well, it could Adonis. Be, well, it could be a kind of... I think it was either Karate Kid f- 3 or 4 where the, it was a gender switch. So okay. it could be that he's teaching his daughter how to become a boxer in the wow. next one. Who knows? We'll have to wait another decade or two for that. That would be really interesting. (laughs) That would be fascinating. Anyway, up next, we're going to park boxing for one film. We're going to talk about a Turkish drama called The Wild Pear Tree. So this latest film from Turkish filmmaker Nuri Bilge Ceylan follows Sinan, a college graduate returning home and facing some crucial life decisions, chiefly whether to take a teacher's exam that could see him shipped off to the sticks. He also wants to publish a book of personal short stories and essays, but he must contend with, amongst many other things, his father, who's gambling away the family savings. David, this sounds like a small film, inflated three hours long. This premiered in Cannes, and you called it in your review Ceylan's greatest work to date. What's this film doing? Where's it fit in his work? And is it a great film? Just to give a bit of context as, as to who he is, mm. I mean, he he's sort of made a name for himself since about 2003, 2004. He had this film in Cannes Film Festival called Uzak, mm. which is translates as distant. It was seen as quite a revolutionary, like new wave of, of Turkish cinema, a very kind of introspective, thoughtful about two men from like bridging the class divide, living together in Istanbul and... It was this very kind of thoughtful, melancholic. It was funny, but not. We wouldn't really call it a comedy. It's quite a sort of despairing film. And ever since then, he's just kind of gone from strength to strength, really, and and pretty much has made a film every two or three years. Mm-hmm. And he moved from these, I guess, sort of conventional art house movies of about kind of ninety to hundred minutes to making these really quite. I guess you'd call them like miniature epics. Mm-hmm. They're like epic scope, epic runtimes, but actually the subject matters are very as you say quite small and focused and intimate um he made this film called once upon a time in anatolia which is a kind of his weirdly ambient take on a kind of cop procedural mm-hmm. an incredible film and then he he won the palm d'or in can for a film called winter sleep which was another three-hour film which i didn't really like so much it was kind of old guys talking and complaining <laughs> that's my memory of it and so this one i was coming to it from you know, having not quite liked the previous film, to add also that his early films were were very visual, pictorial. They were about people who couldn't express themselves. Mm-hmm. And he's moved into this like new chapter of, of his career where it's about people who are like almost like taking expression to a new level where they're so in tune with their feelings and so able to articulate themselves that they become quite annoying <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> so this film is about a young writer who returns to his his village He's written a novel which he describes as a metafiction about his hometown. And the film essentially is a catalogue of his interactions with people he knows, people in the town, his attempts to try and get his book off the ground to get money for publishing. All the while, his father, who is a gambling addict, is frittering away the family funds. It's bittersweet and melancholy, and it's 
absolutely beautifully written and these the conversations I'll admit that some might may feel they drag on for instance he has a conversation with a with a local author mm-hmm. uh, in a bookshop and it sort of it develops and develops and develops and develops and he, he it's almost like he's creating these entire little miniature one act plays with each setup and character that that Sinan the, mm-hmm. the protagonist meets with and you're, you're watching this film and you're not entirely sh- well from my perspective I wasn't entirely sure where it was going mm-hmm, and mm. how it was going to tie itself up but I think it's a sign of the film's greatness that it comes to this conclusion which I just found sublimely satisfying and it somehow ties everything up in a way that doesn't feel contrived or too kind of neat and clever it lives or dies by its kind of final 10 minutes yeah. and I think the final 10 minutes are so incredible that it just lifts this film up into a kind of a, a, a new stratosphere mm-hmm. so I think in short, I really like this film. You, you love this movie. Sorry. Yes, well, I'd seen Once Upon a Time... Hogging, hogging the mic there. <laughs> I'd seen Once Upon a Time in Anatolia years ago and that became a, a sort of unique film for me because it's my the best film I've ever seen that I gladly slept through parts of. And ah. there is this, this feeling that he's... Such slow-paced movies, long, drawn-out scenes. This film... I didn't sleep through this film, of course, but this film is one that will have 20, 25 minute long scenes of just two people having a chat. You mentioned the local author that he badges and hounds across what seems like two hours. And then he has another one with the lo- another conversation with a local imam. Likewise, they go on this long walk around the countryside and he just keeps talking, coming back on these ideological concepts and arguments. But it, you realise in the last 10 minutes that it's all been leading to something, little seeds planted all the way through imagery that really resounds in the end. I also think... It's not as heavy going as it sounds, three hour long Turkish drama. There are moments of humour, if not necessarily outright comedy. Christina, what did you make of this? There's a bit I kind of realised. I thought I was watching one film mm-hmm. and fairly early into it when his father's building this kind of existentially pointless well, <laughs> um, which everyone around him is saying, like, it's a dry well. <laughs> like there's no water in it, but he just keeps wanting to build it. So him and his grandfather I think, are helping. Mm-hmm. And the, the bit where the, the three of them are tugging on this big rock with the rope tied around it and trying to like lift it out they finally manage to get it to the top of the the well and then it falls out again (laughs) it's almost slapstick and then there's a shot from inside the well and you see the three heads just like kind of so like i felt a little bit maybe daunted Mm -hmm. by the concept of it at the beginning and um it rewards your patience Mm -hmm. because it has tenderness and humor without necessarily being particularly humor (laughs) a humorous film per se or without being you know, it has compassion for its characters whilst not being afraid to look at their flaws. It has a way of kind of studying them so closely, particularly the main protagonist, where even when he's not doing very much, um, and I guess it's a credit to the actor as well, you sense his kind of overwhelming, I don't know if I'd say smugness, but like he has this bit of a su- superior mm-hmm. <laughs> attitude, which is off-putting, mm-hmm. but not so much that you can't watch him. <laughs> I think the, what, what, one of the things I like about the film, actually, is that you have this idea of the unlikable character. You know, I can't like this film because I don't relate to the character. I don't like him, so I can't enjoy him and, and I can't reason with him and listen to him. But what Jayland does, I think, is take that concept and just spins it into something completely different. I mean, he he is a nightmare, you know. <laughs> He's this kind of sued and he always knows better. And he, the, the, one of the reasons why these conversations go on and on and on is because he is that guy who always needs yeah. to say have the last laugh and he's kind of the the embodiment of that but the more time you spend with him 
and the way that Ceylan sh- like depicts his life and the, and the moments in between these conversations and the ways he kind of looks at people and remembers his his family and the people he he grew up with i mean he the, he becomes this kind of tragic figure when you realize that this noble intent of having a book published which he thinks is going to be this great novel which in reality you know it's got no commercial value mm-hmm. he can't see that and mm-hmm. there's a sort of tragic element to that that connects him to his sort of slightly deadbeat father mm-hmm. this kind of as you say it's like the well it's the, it's the kind of the dream that the the, the dash dream that's that's going to lead to ruin mm-hmm. um it's just so good. <laughs> yeah, it, must, yeah. it, it just it's this novelistic scope. His small character and small concerns take on such great importance as you go through along the way. Like a tumbleweed, he picks up all these elements of the social fabric of Turkey, the the collision between the West and the Eastern influences there, the small town versus the rural, the generations, fathers and sons, and further sons beneath them. And there's a fantastic scene very early in the film where he goes and sees a local magistrate who might be funding his book, and as you say, he's so convinced that his book has worth, but the local councillors like, does it have tourist value? Does it have you know, local history? And he's like, no, not really. It's all about myself. It's a autofiction meta novel, and. I do wonder, that's a scene that makes me wonder if Jalen's ever watched The Simpsons because there's a line where uh, the local officer says, do you see that door on the way in? The kid looks behind the door. There's no door because my door's always open. It made me think of Hank Scorpio <laughs> in You Only Move Twice, that classic episode of there are no walls, no doors, no hangers in this, in this place. Well, there's a very funny review in Sight and Sound which suggests the director was watching Columbo. <laughs> There's a kind of and one more thing, but then <laughs> the dad actually does call him Columbo at one point. Oh, a very strange yeah. <laughs> exchange. I mean, the dad's amazing. You could almost imagine if this was curved slightly more towards comedy, this could be almost a Tony Erdman sort of film. The dad is such a, a chancer and a, and a wastrel with a prodigious mustache. Oh, amazing mustache. I mean, I think any of the, the dad, the mother could have easily been like the central characters of the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just, but the the dad is has got that kind of. I almost feel like he's been plucked out of like seventies New Hollywood. There's mm. a sort of dashed idealism. The charming know, loser. The ch- yeah, the, the the charming loser who who is just on this perpetual road to nowhere mm-hmm. and just cannot get off it, and he and he kind of knows it. Although his he is sort of like dragging his family down with him, he's got this kind of perpetual smile throughout, <laughs> and he he's he's got this amazing laugh in the yeah. film as well. Like I mean, it it just. This sort of cheerfulness, it's kind of haunting, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could talk about this yeah. film for hours, clearly, but I think it sounds like we should recommend... We should talk about it for three hours, I think. Well, I think <laughs> listeners should save their time and go and watch it for three hours, is what we're thinking. David, would you like to give your scores for this film? So I'd probably say it was Anticipation 3, because, I, as I say, Winter Sleep, his previous film, was probably my least favourite of his films. I found it, like, where this film had kind of levity and lightness and humour and, and poeticism... That film was, was, I just felt really kind of turgid and mm-hmm. it felt like a kind of being talked at rather than, yeah. And then Fives, because I just, oh, yeah. I, I was really blown away by it. It was maybe like the best film I saw in Cannes. Yeah, loved it. Christina? I think my anticipation was quite low, probably about a two. Mm. Like I said, I was surprised by it. So I feel like probably a four during watching, but on reflection, I think it's when it became a five. Yeah, fantastic. So that's quite strong recommendation there for the wild pear tree up next film club where we're back in the boxing ring with Ali. one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey. Will Smith there in Ali. Michael Mann's biopic covers a key decade in Ali's career, from his legendary bout with Sonny Liston in 64, right through to the Rumble in the Jungle fight with George Foreman in 74, also covering his conversion to Islam, friendship with Malcolm X, and his criticism of the Vietnam War. And this was a first watch for me, but Christina, as you're a boxing expert, a boxing film expert, how did this play for you? I came back to it with the memory that nobody can portray Ali as well as he can portray himself on the screen. And so when we watch documentaries like When We Were Kings, you can't really come near it. And I think Will Smith does a decent approximation, but Mm -hmm. I think his performance is maybe more of an impression of Ali than it really is much of a performance. Mm -hmm. So that was my memory of it. But I love Michael Mann Mm -hmm. and I love Ali, so I wanted to give it a chance. And I was so disappointed by this movie. If I didn't care so much about the subject, then maybe I could have given it a pass as something that was just a bit mediocre. Mm -hmm. But for a film that is about the most exciting, controversial period of one of the most important people of the 20th century's lives and careers, it's really astoundingly dull. I don't actually know how it's managed to do it. Mm -hmm. I think think it's because of that kind of... That sort of dramatic void, mm-hmm. smack dab in the middle of his career. Like, you know, he's at this high point and then all of a sudden he is, uh, like, he's not imprisoned, but he's suspended, he's, sus- he's suspended from boxing. Outcast. He's, he's outcast from License the, the Muslim yeah. Brotherhood. And is it four years that he's kind of... Yeah, three or, three or four, yeah. Yeah, that nothing really happens and he's kind of carrying on with his life as the sort of civil rights movement is changing in America around him. And, I, and it feels like by retaining the focus on Ali through that period of him basically trying to get back on his feet, convince people to let him fight, going against the powers that be, mm. it's kind of dramatically inert. Yeah. You know, I, again, I, I love Michael Mann, and I think that at the beginning and the end of the film, when you've actually got... The fighting. The fighting. The mm. fighting Long itself shot. is incredible. Yeah. The attention shot. to detail is incredible. I think there's a moment at, right at the beginning where Ali is going to fight 
Sonny Liston mm-hmm. and he's left the room and his trainer, it just, the camera sticks on the trainer as he's putting all his medical supplies into his pocket in a very kind of mm-hmm. casual, calm way. And you, you just like, he's filling up his pocket with all these kind of bandages and swabs and things like that. And it's just this lovely little kind of the raw detail of, of what a boxing match is about. And Michael Mann films it in this incredibly dynamic exciting way I think. It's very oddly structured isn't it? The first hour feels more like a Malcolm X film than an Ali film. Mm. Uh, Not only do you have many returning actors who are in Spike Lee's Malcolm X from literally only a few years before Mm -hmm. it focuses so much on similar plot threads from that and Ali is almost just a character in the orbit of Malcolm X and that's after a really great opening sequence to that Sam Cooke medley Mm -hmm. uh, where it's this incredible montage which is going back and forth in time with who is this man Cassius Clay soon to be Muhammad Ali and then you don't hear him speak until the clip we heard it's like 10 minutes maybe nearly 50 minutes into the film where he suddenly erupts with energy and then we don't see that man again so yeah I was a bit disappointed I'm not a huge Michael Mann fan I'm not in the pocket for him but this felt like it was not on a par with the insider his film before or heat before that I think a lot of people are anti-Michael Mann because he has this weird digital fetish there's some strange digital shots in this one as well. I and think. It, uh, yeah, and it's, I think it started with this film mm. where he, he started using these digital cameras and he makes a lot of period films mm-hmm. and it does seem strangely kind of off-putting to... I don't know, some people might find it off-putting, but seeing these yeah. digital shots. But there's also, like, I think more problematic is the soundtrack because you've got, like, R. Kelly and Moby and uh, Salif Keita, who's a Malian pop star, it's his track that plays over over the rumble in the jungle. Mm. It's that kind of live mm. sounding. I mean, it's nothing wrong with the track itself, but it just sounds very modern. And it's like there is that kind of weird, all these modern elements that are kind of really dragging you out of the moment. Mm-hmm. It's weird because I find a film like, I absolutely adore his film Public Enemies mm. about Dillinger, which is even more, has that kind Jarring, of fuzzy, it? noisy, digital vibe to it. But I feel that with that, he goes so all in on it that it becomes part of the fabric of the film. Whereas this, you just have these moments where it goes from this, this, this nice kind of like washed out, quite traditionally cinematic look mm-hmm. to quite grainy and very obviously digital. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Public Enemies. I really would like to rewatch that film because it did feel that that was a, almost a historical novel in a film that uses Dillinger and the other gangsters at the time as a way of commenting on the rise of a certain sort of crime. The fact that the FBI had to get involved because they were crossing state lines and they'd get away from the local police. This film as a biopic feels like it has too many threads that don't none of them turn into commentary on the period. The fact that late in the game Don King comes in, dreams up this rumble in the jungle concept of being this huge event as a boxing match, which seems to foreshadow the way boxing goes later in the period. Sure, yeah. I mean Don King is a to borrow from Mike Tyson's great adjective a reptilian person um i mean you get a hint of that and there's a there's a good moment where they're at a press conference i think he's there with angelo dundee mm-hmm. who's a you know famously well-respected boxing trainer through most of ali's career and um don king speaks sharply to dundee and ali stops him mm-hmm. but i mean aside from that we don't get much about the things that about ali's career that i think still haunt us today which is that famous rope-a-dope that he does during the rumble in the jungle, is that how he, and the subsequent him refusing to stop fighting, 
because of the huge entourage he had around him that didn't want him to do it and for whatever greedy reasons that they didn't. When he eventually fought Larry Holmes in 1980, up to that point, like he was already not well. And the mm-hmm. Parkinson's that he ended up getting was almost undoubtedly partially to do with the beatings that he took later yeah. in his career. But those kind of those last couple of fights with Joe Frazier and that that fight, you don't get a lot of that. And I, I realized that Ali was alive at the time and he was heavily involved in the making of the film. So maybe that was partly why, like, you know, they wanted it to be at his most glorious moment, you know, and I can see that. But there's insights there that are missing. And even from his earlier part of his career as well, like in his life, you know, his unfaithfulness and things like that, I feel like it's touched upon, but we never really get any insight into the how his character operates. On that side of things, did you feel that the film very much kind of lets him off as a kind of he's just a cheeky chancer yeah. and the, these are the, the women are coming to him and he's like, well, I, I can't say no, can I? I mean, yeah. it's like they're, mm-hmm. they're right there in front of me. I'm in Zaire. Wife is, is back in America and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just... You know. And also early on, why he sides with Elijah Muhammad over Malcolm X, that was never clear to me. They have this kind of confrontation and he's like, you shouldn't have quarreled with Elijah Muhammad. But aside from that, we don't really get a very good sense of why he makes the decisions he makes in a political way. Just a lot of surface stuff and no insight. I think there is something inherently flawed with, this is going to sound like quite a sweeping statement here, but with the the biopic genre in general, where you have like these clashing ideals of needing to have a drama with an arc that develops in a certain kind of way and the fact that people's lives don't do that Mm -hmm. in general is maybe my most hated genre like, I mean pretty much as a as a rule of, I, I'll go and see a biopic on the bus home I'll end up reading up on the subject you know, even something like Wikipedia which is like the most kind of superficial glaze over, over a life and a career you know all the beats are there mm-hmm. you can just see like yeah cut and paste cut and paste cut and paste and like even in this film it does feel like there are these kind of top line events you know we have to include that we have to include mm-hmm. that we have to include that and no real thought of well, is, how does that serve a, a drama? How or does that the, serve the image of a person? Exactly. Well, there is there are some real clangor biopic lines in here. Like, I hear you met the Beatles, yeah. and there's Maya Angelou. Literally, oh, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, that's really throwaway as well. It's I like, thought it was like Maya, are you coming over? <laughs> I guess that's probably a director's cut bit because there's there's lots of different cuts of this film. I'm sure, so. there is. Yeah. This was two and a half hours. The one I think that we yeah. we have now, and it felt it. Yeah, it felt long. Because aside from when he was fighting. It didn't feel exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a film that could have benefited from being more conventional or more unconventional. One moment that really struck me, and it's dealing with some of those top-line moments that you talk about, is that it's the iconic photograph when he's telling Sonny Liston to get up, right? Mm-hmm. You see that being taken, but it, you don't see it. You see the crowd lit up by a flashbulb, mm. which is quite a nice, artful way of touching on a moment that you're expecting to see. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's that on the one hand, and then on the other, there's this dramatic void all the way through about who he was and how he operates. I feel like Ali could be really well serviced by a film that was very like, I'm not there. Right. I feel like a cultural figure of his import could stand to deal with something a lot more unconventional, mm-hmm. could stand to deal with the different representations, the different stages mm-hmm. of his career and what he meant to different people. And I think he has enough of that cultural significance, particularly now. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, looking at his life, I think something like that would be nice. That would be interesting to see. But would you say 
with the current film canon, we're better served by documentaries. Yes, 100%. When We Were Kings, any of his talk show appearances, particularly the ones where he gets like very argumentative with Michael Parkinson, Perfect. there's nothing better than seeing Ali just do his thing, I think. There's actually an interesting element in the film where his relationship with... Howard Cor- Cosell. Howard Cosell. That's, yeah, that's actually one of the more interesting parts of the film. You could say there's something... The way that they publicly constantly insulted each other, but then actually had quite a... Yeah. Collegiate nice relationship. Yeah. Yeah. John Voight under eight hours of makeup. Yes. I didn't recognise him. I know, me neither. Halfway through the film, that's when I, when I, when I recognised him. I guess it was a pre-wingnut John Voight as well. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and he got a Best Supporting Actor nomination for it. I think I probably like Will Smith's performance in this a bit more than you. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something that sort of tips it slightly over the just sort of the sort of impression level. Mm-hmm. Deserved Academy Award nomination, mm-hmm. and I think it's kind of sad that because the film was a box office flop. Critically, it did okay, but box office, it lost a lot of money. It feels like, in terms of Will Smith's career, this might have been a kind of, well, I'm not doing that again kind of moment. Mm -hmm. If you look at the films he was doing, he'd just come off the back of Wild Wild West. Mm -hmm. He followed it with, like, Men in Black 2, Bad Boys 2. All sequels after this, isn't it? it? Well, this is the start of his legendary run of eight films that gross over 100 million at the US box office. It's almost he did this and Legend of Bag of Vance that didn't pay off. And he thought, no, I'm just going to go and do sequels and animated films now. He became Mr. Box Office, which is apparently his own uh, nickname that he gave himself. Oh, wow. Citation needed there. Citation (laughs) needed. Let's get Will Smith on the next episode. But yes... That was Ali. Let us know what you think at LWLies or Truth and Movies on Twitter um, at uh, LWLies.com slash podcast or at Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com. Next week, oh, a couple of good films next week. We've got The Old Man and the Gun, David Lowry's film with Robert Redford. Sorry to Bother You, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Hotly Tipped, Boots Riley's uh, comedy. Hotly Tipped from this American release earlier in the year. And we're going to have a listener's favourite Christmas movie for Film Club. Is that what's that going to be? We're going to find. Are out. Are we going to find out yeah, what that's yeah, going to be? That, you can that, tell us. Yeah, you you can tell us. Take heed of this uh, this call out and Answers tell us on a postcard. Is, if it's not these... trading places, then everyone quits. Okay. Well, do you know, do you know that's what an I love? Ultimatum there from Christina. <laughs> do you know what my most beloved thing is? When people tell you that Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Mm. Um, Did is, you know that? Is Die Hard or a Christmas movie? Oh, I don't know. Well. That maybe we can. Maybe that could be our Christmas movie this year. Do we need to specify whether it's a movie set at Christmas or a Christmas-themed movie? Does it have to have hope and good cheer? I think it just has to have some very tenuous link to Christmas. Any tenuous yeah, link yeah. you can think of, throw them our way at the usual channels. And anyway, that just leaves me time to say thank you to David Jenkins joining me today. And Christina Newland, thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully you'll come back Thanks soon. Thanks for having me. Come back down from Nottingham someday. I've been Michael Leader, and this, as always, has been a 7 Digital production. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.